maternal diabetes. It's out there, but what is the data on hemoglobin A1c and birth defects? At what level does the risk rise? Let's look at the data next. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the fascinating world of obstetrics and gynecology. This is Clinical Pearls. Currently, 60 million women of reproductive age, that's between 15 and 44 years old, worldwide have diabetes, and about 3 million American women have the condition. And it has been estimated that this number could double by the year 2030. Placental hormones, growth factors, and cytokines cause a progressive increase in insulin resistance during pregnancy. This necessitates intensive medical nutrition therapy and frequent adjusted insulin administration to prevent hyperglycemia that's dangerous to the fetus. Insulin resistance enhances the risk of ketoacidosis in response to the stress of concurrent illnesses or drugs used in the management of obstetrical complications. Insulin-induced hypoglycemia is more rapid in onset during pregnancy and also a danger to the pregnant woman, especially in patients with type 1 diabetes. Women with type 2 diabetes often start pregnancy with marked insulin resistance and obesity, adding to the difficulty of securing optimal glycemic control. Fetal hyperglycemia causes fetal hypoxia and acidosis, which may explain the excess stillbirth rates still seen in poorly controlled diabetic women. Infants with macrosomia due to poor maternal glycemic control and fetal hyperinsulinemia are more likely to develop obesity and glucose intolerance later. And long term, like from 5 to 15 years later, these studies show that infants of diabetic mothers suggest that poor glycemic control during pregnancy can have a negative influence on intellectual and even psychomotor development. Pre-gestational diabetes is a significant public health problem that increases the risk for structural birth defects affecting both maternal and neonatal pregnancy outcome. The most common type of human structural birth defects associated with pre-gestational diabetes are congenital heart defects and central nervous system errors. However, diabetes can induce birth defects in any other fetal organ. All right, now here's the topic of our session. In general, the rate of birth defects increases linearly with the degree of maternal hyperglycemia. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a bit. And this is the major factor that mediates teratogenicity of pregestational diabetes. Well, here's a big plug for pre Pregnancy care, stringent prenatal care, and glycemic control are effective means to reduce birth defects in pregestational diabetics before pregnancy in order to prevent excess spontaneous abortions and major congenital malformations. Target hemoglobin A1c is as close to normal as possible without significant hypoglycemia being a goal. Healthcare providers should help to ensure effective contraception until stable and acceptable glycemia is achieved. Now, excellent glycemic control in the first trimester continued throughout pregnancy is associated with the lowest frequency of maternal 
fetal and neonatal complications. Develop or adjust a management plan to achieve near-normal glycemia is a recommendation by the American Diabetic Association and ACOG. Now, due to the risk of neural tube defects, it's recommended that women, of course, consume 400 micrograms of folic acid daily from supplements, fortified foods, or both. Now, during preconception and the prenatal periods, it can also be recommended that in diabetic mothers, they increase that to 600 micrograms per day through supplementation of vitamins. Now, Folate supplementation may mask signs of B12 deficiency in women with type 1 diabetics who have autoimmune gastritis. So, it can be considered or a recommendation to check baseline vitamin B12 levels in these patients. All right, now remember that we're talking about pre-pregnancy care. Those considering pregnancy, or at least those who are in the first trimester and have pre-existing diabetes, should also undergo 24-hour urine collection for total protein and have a comprehensive ophthalmological examination. Why? Because these can affect the white classification score that they fall into during established pregnancy. Okay, when we get back, let's talk about the risk of congenital birth defects with diabetes mellitus. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Based on the available literature, women with pregestational diabetes have a two- to nine-fold higher risk for having a child with a birth defect with a prevalence of birth defects from 3 to 18% compared with a healthy population that has a prevalence of birth defects from 3 to 4%. Rare abnormalities have been associated with diabetes, and it includes caudal regression syndrome and femoral shortening. There can also be sacral agenesis. Caudal regression syndrome consists of a spectrum of congenital abnormalities of the lower spine and the hips. It's associated with genital urinary and lower limb defects, and it's one of the few syndromes in which the presence of maternal diabetes has always been considered to be the cause. Studies in animal models have revealed that pregestational diabetes induces oxidative stress and this activates cellular stress signaling leading to dysregulation of gene expression and excess apoptosis in target organs including the neural tube and the embryonic heart. This is the proposed pathomechanism of birth defects with uncontrolled diabetes. Maternal diabetes also appears to increase the expression of inducible nitric oxide synthase, whose enzymatic activity catalyzes the reaction of superoxide with nitric oxide to produce reactive nitrogen species. Well, what does that mean? Well, work in animal models indicates that reactive nitrogen species creates an additional severe form of oxidative stress. Well, that's just great. And this is responsible for the activation of other cellular stress signaling. 
That's right. These cellular stress signaling pathways are the mechanism by which organogenesis is affected. Well, what's the cutoff level for hemoglobin A1c at which these kind of birth defects can increase? Is there a level? Let's take a look at the data. Now, although several people have investigated the cutoff level at which adverse pregnancy outcomes occur, one of the more comprehensive studies was by Nelson et al. Nelson sought to answer the question regarding the hemoglobin A1c levels and adverse outcomes in their 2006 publication in Diabetes Care. This study was a Danish population-based cohort study of about 573 pregnancies in women with type 1 diabetes. Of 573 pregnancies, 29% ended the pregnancy with some kind of adverse outcome. The prevalence of adverse outcomes varied sixfold from 12% in the lowest to 79% in the highest quantiles of hemoglobin A1c exposure. Well, here's what this means. From hemoglobin A1c levels greater than 7, they found an almost linear association between hemoglobin A1c and risk of adverse outcome where every 1% increase in hemoglobin A1c corresponded to a 5% increase in adverse outcome. All right, here's the short of it. The higher the hemoglobin A1c, the greater the chance of having a child affected with some kind of congenital anomaly. But remember, it was beyond just the anomalies. We're talking about adverse pregnancy outcomes overall. The adverse pregnancy outcomes included spontaneous abortion, therapeutic abortion, stillbirth, neonatal death, and of course, our topic, congenital malformations. Minor congenital abnormalities were suspected or found in 20 other babies. Now, in pregnancies with available data on glycosylated hemoglobin, mean A1c values were 7.4% in pregnancies that ended up with a good outcome compared with 8.5% in pregnancies ending with an adverse outcome. So it seems that hemoglobin A1c doesn't have to be over 10 to be bad outcomes because this tended to rise after 7.4 and increase linearly by 1% of hemoglobin A1c values. The increase in adverse outcome and birth defects was greatly seen. Now, at a value greater than or equal to a hemoglobin A1c value of 10%, there was a 23% risk of major fetal structural malformations. So was the take-home message? Get that hemoglobin A1c as close to normal as possible pre-pregnancy, and the desired number is 7 or less. As we get to the end of the podcast, here's a quick tip to remember what the hemoglobin A1c value actually represents. Remember, it represents the previous three-month glycemic control overall. And here's a quick way to remember what the numbers translate to, starting with a hemoglobin A1c value of 6. Relate that to a baseline three-month cumulative average of glycemic control that's about a level of 120. So hemoglobin A1c of 6 means that the sugar level was on an average about 120 for the last three months. For every 1% increase in hemoglobin A1c, just add 30 to that baseline hemoglobin average. For example, hemoglobin A1c of 7 would be 120 plus 30, so it'd be 150. For a hemoglobin A1c of 8, it would be 150 plus 30, so that's 180. 
For hemoglobin A1c of 9, we're talking about a mean glucose level over the last three months of around 210, and so on. So remember, start with a hemoglobin A1c of 6, meaning a baseline overall sugar level of around 120, and add 30 for each 1% increase in hemoglobin A1c values. And diabetes just kind of gets you. And it seems to be going up with a projection of doubling in 2030 because BMIs are not going down, but they're going up rapidly. So the idea is to take care of ourselves and get that sugar control in place before pregnancy occurs. Hey, thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls.